You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Welcome to this episode of Canada's Court. My name is Reem Zaya. I'm a lawyer at Gowling WLG in Ottawa, where I practice regulatory, white-collar, criminal, and privacy law. Today's podcast is in respect of Tyler Gordon Strathdee versus Her Majesty the Queen. There is a publication ban in this matter pursuant to Section 46.4. Mr. Strathdee was involved in a group assault at a downtown Edmonton apartment with at least four other men. Several victims were stabbed, one fatally so. He was charged with second-degree murder, manslaughter, one count of break-and-enter, and three counts of aggravated assault. At trial, he was acquitted of second-degree murder, manslaughter, and break-and-enter with intent. He was convicted on all three counts for aggravated assault as a party to the offense under Section 21 Sub 2 of the Criminal Code, having been involved in a group assault. With respect to the murder charge, the trial judge found as a fact that only one person could have caused the victim's death and that no one else applied force to him. As such, under Section 21 Sub 2 Paragraph A, Mr. Strathdee could not be found liable where the cause of death could have only been inflicted by one person. In that regard, an acquittal was entered. The Crown appealed the acquittal on the homicide charge and the appellant cross-appealed his convictions for aggravated assault. The Court of Appeal of Alberta found that the trial judge erred in her application of the law on joint participation, ultimately allowing the Crown's appeal. The court held that because of the judge's finding of group assault, she ought to have assessed Mr. Strathdee's liability as a joint principal and that the Crown was not required to prove that Mr. Strathdee personally applied force to the deceased. The acquittal was set aside and the court substituted a conviction for manslaughter. Mr. Strathdee's cross-appeal was dismissed. Mr. Strathdee appealed his conviction for manslaughter as of right. And at issue before the Supreme Court of Canada is whether the trial judge erred in her application of the law of joint principles. Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of Tyler Gordon Strathdee against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant, Tyler Gordon Strathdee, Mr. Graham Johnson, Tanya Shapka, for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Julie Morgan. Mr. Johnson. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, I need to begin my submissions by apologizing and asking the court to disregard tab two of my condensed book. Well, it contains a Alberta Court of Appeal judgment dealing with Mr. Strathdee. It is not the Alberta Court of Appeal judgment being appealed from. Uh, for what it's worth, the citation in my table of contents on the condensed book is to the correct case, but regrettably, that is not what got printed in the materials. So my apologies, and please disregard that tab. While this is a case about party liability and when it may or may not apply, it's also a case about reasonable doubt and the presumption of innocence in the context of what this trial judge found was a great deal of extremely unreliable evidence. And application of the law, and in this case, we're talking about the law of party liability as joint principles, that application is always very fact specific. But to understand the trial judge's conclusions in this case, in my submission, it's particularly important to understand what sort of evidentiary foundation or lack thereof the trial judge was dealing with in the case before her. And in this regard, I would um, draw the court's attention to a quotation cited with approval in this court's decision in Walker, which is at tab three of our condensed book um, on the last page at page 260, as it seems particularly appropriate. And the quotation is that a reasonable doubt need not rest upon the same sort of foundation of factual findings that is required to support conviction. A reasonable doubt arises where an inadequate foundation has been laid. 
and it is submitted that this is what happened with the manslaughter acquittal of Mr. Strathdee. And while I intend to move obviously to a discussion of party liability in my submission, it's in first important to look at in some detail just what the trial judge had in front of her. And in my submission, simply to call the primary witnesses in this case, Vetrovec witnesses or people who were drunk or high, which most were, or unsavory or unreliable witnesses really doesn't do justice to just how bad some of the evidence was. And so while it's a little bit unusual, I have included some of the raw evidence uh, in our condensed book um, so the court can see just what kind of evidence the trial judge did in fact have before her. And it begins with, um, at tab four, the evidence of Mr. Kalik. And transcript, page 795, um, condensed book, page 147, uh, it clearly begins when Mr. Kalik is sitting down when he's initially giving, giving his evidence and there's some difficulty hearing him because Crown Counsel says, I have difficulty hearing you when you are sitting. Answer, you have difficult hearing me sitting because you cannot see me when there is a mic and I'm sitting right beside you. So right from the very beginning, Mr. Um, Kalik is showing a certain amount of contempt for the process and for Crown Counsel. At the bottom of the same page, question, Mr. Kalik, you have a criminal record? Answer, yes. Okay, you do have one on the next page. Answer, fuck, man. Question, and it began in 2007. Is that correct to the best of your recollection? Answer, I wish not to proceed anymore. Mr. Kalik, why is that? Answer, because I have nothing to say. Jumping down a few lines. Crown Counsel says, Mr. Kalik, this is going to be a very difficult afternoon if you don't at least show the court common courtesy, so you need to stand. Answer, oh, I'm showing common courtesy as much as I can. Question a couple lines down, I appreciate that, but you need to stand. Answer, excuse me, lawyer. Then the court intervenes and says, all right, sir, we will ask you the questions you will be asked. You will give the answers in that matter. We can receive your evidence. You are required to provide your evidence by way of your subpoena. Answer, whoa. You know, next page, Mr. Kalik, why do you not want to be here today? Answer, because either way, it's a setup. After that, still a setup. After that, a setup. Either way, you're all just evil pieces of shits. A few lines down, Mr. Kalik, do you remember testifying in July of 2017 at the preliminary inquiry? Answer, before I died numerous times. Mr. Kalik, answer, just hold on a second, I'm not done talking. I just said, just before I died numerous times, I'm not sure if I testified, do you understand? A few lines down, you died numerous times, what do you mean by that? Well, fuck man, idiot, make it seem like just I'm just a fucking piece of shit, which I am. Mr. Kalik, we don't believe that. Answer, shut up, man. Next page, you need to answer the question. Answer, can you stop talking, please? Um, it goes on for several lines in that vein. Then a few pages later, um, Mr. Kalik's being shown a video and asked to identify the parties in the video outside the 7-Eleven, the Crown's theory being Mr. Strathdee and Mr. Nelson, who was also on trial, is one of them. And so question, and that guy, I want you to look around the courtroom. Do you see that guy from the video here? Answer, I'm not too sure. Question, I'd like you to look around the courtroom. Answer, maybe, just kidding. Okay, Mr. Kalik, answer, yes, I do see that guy. Question, and where is he? Standing in front of me asking questions. So this is the sort of absolute contempt that some of the witnesses were showing. Moving to the next tab of the condensed book, Mr. Toker's evidence. Um, it's a single page excerpt, but about three quarters of the way down the page, Crown Counsel says to Mr. Toker, do you need a break? Answer, no, no, I just want to get this done because I don't like Tyler, he's a goof. So we have the open hostility of Mr. Toker. Moving to the next tab, the evidence of Mr. Phillips. Um, 
counsel, Crown Counsel asked if he wished to review a videotaped interview, and this is at page uh, 465 of the transcript. Question, so when I asked you if you wanted to review your videotaped interview, you said no, is that correct? Answer, yes. And that's still your position? Answer, yeah. You don't want to review it? No. Are you able to read a transcript? No. Is that because you cannot read or yes? Okay, I can't read. And then Crown Counsel goes on to try to ask a question, answer, but I, you know what, how many times you got to ask me the same questions? I don't want to talk right now. And it continues on in that vein. And ultimately, there were several 9-2 applications. There were applications to read in evidence under principled exceptions to the hearsay rule. And so this is what the trial judge was dealing with. And then there are the statements of Mr. Strathdee. But excuse me, in, in respect of those statements, does the trial judge place any weight on them at, at all, the, the evidence of Mr. Kalik or Mr. Toker? My recollection is that they're kind of put to a side and, uh, um, and, and not relied upon as being uh, um, credible. They're not. And... But... In my submission, it's important to understand just what the trial judge was dealing with in order to understand her findings of fact and the conclusions she drew from those findings of fact. And so the evidence of some of the witnesses before her, it's not just that it was unreliable evidence. She was dealing with people who were showing absolute contempt for the court process. And so... Her ultimate findings of fact as it related to party liability and whether or not Mr. Strathdee was a joint principal on the manslaughter, in my submission, need to be read in the context of not just that she had unreliable evidence before her, she had people who were showing absolute contempt for the process, and so there was just almost a vacuum in her mind in terms of evidence as to what actually happened. And then there are the statements of Mr. Strathdee. On October 20th, he gave a statement saying he was an occupant of the suite when the intruders came in and Mr. Kalick stabbed Mr. Tong. His second statement, October 30th, added very little. Then when he was arrested in March of 2016, he admitted to fighting with, quote, like punching a couple of the other guys that were there. He denied stabbing Mr. Tong. In his October 15th or October 20th, 2015 statement, he said Mr. Kalick stabbed Mr. Tong. In his March of 2016 statement, he said it was Mr. Phillips. So given all of this, what findings of fact did the trial judge in fact make? In terms of Mr. Strathdee's statements, at least the parts that were not inculpatory, she found he had clearly lied to police, which he did. She stated she was unable to believe or disbelieve and described it as not knowing whether his exculpatory evidence was true or false. And she then went on to set out the evidence she did accept, which is that Jonathan Pichet, Mr. Nelson, Mr. Strathdee, Mr. Phillips, and Mr. Kalick were part of a group that attended the suite on that date. Mr. Strathdee went to the apartment to confront and here she accepted this could have been a verbal confrontation, one of the occupants of the suite about beating up one of his friends. Prior to entering the suite, there was no common intention amongst the group for an attack or to assault the occupants. Once the group entered the suite, the fire extinguisher was discharged and immediately after that, a fight broke out between members of the group that entered the suite and several of its occupants. She does not say all of the occupants. There were many individuals fighting, not all individuals, but many. She found a knife must have been involved, given the injuries. It was not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that either Mr. Strathdee or Mr. Nelson personally caused any of the injuries to any of the occupants. Mr. Tong died of a single stab wound, described in medical evidence was not in dispute. She found that stabbing to be a discreet act carried out by one individual, which was not proven to be Mr. Strathdee. As the trial judge put it in her findings of fact, 
This is not a classic scenario where multiple persons assaulted Mr. Tong at the same time. Now, the Court of Appeal emphasized the principle that in a group assault, a blow of one is a blow to all, regardless of the number of assailants in the group or the number of victims, which in the abstract is correct as far as it goes, but in my submission, a dangerous statement when applied to the, frankly, lack of evidence as to what exactly happened in that suite in this case. The Court of Appeal found that the trial judge was required to assess Strathy's culpability as a joint principle to manslaughter under Section 21 sub 1 sub A of the Code on the basis of her own fact-finding that this was a group assault. In my respectful submission, that statement by the Court of Appeal is an oversimplification. The trial judge found there was a group assault, yes, but did not find that Mr. Tong died as part of that group assault, or certainly had a doubt about whether Mr. Tong died as part of that group assault. And so when the Court of Appeal held at paragraph 67, for these reasons, it is irrelevant who struck the fatal knife blow to Tong, and that's citing Cabrera, uh, at paragraph 80. More specifically, it matters not whether Strathdee himself laid a hand on Tong. Again, in the abstract, that might be correct, but problematic when applied to the facts of this case. Accordingly, the trial judge erred when, as an explanation for acquitting Strathdee of the manslaughter, she said, there is no evidence of others applying force to Mr. Tong prior to his death. Given her findings of a group assault on the occupants of the Burnstick suite, that evidence was not required to convict members of that group, of the assaulting group of manslaughter. In my respectful submission, on the inferences available on the record that was before the trial judge and her findings of fact, that statement by the Court of Appeal is too sweeping and has the potential to expand party liability in a way that could capture people who are morally innocent of being a party. And to explain how that is so, I would give the following hypothetical scenario. Three people are occupants of a residence. A group of three visitors comes to visit the residence because one of the visitors is acquainted with one of the occupants. As the visitors enter the suite, one visitor recognizes one of the occupants as someone with whom he has had a long running dispute over a former girlfriend or something. And those two individuals immediately engage in a confrontation. One of the other occupants and one of the other visitors involve themselves in that confrontation, which quickly turns physical. In the course of that physical altercation involving four individuals, a knife comes out and one person is seriously stabbed. I will call that altercation number one. While altercation number one is happening, the one remaining occupant and one remaining visitor are initially standing off to the side when suddenly the one remaining visitor recognizes the one remaining occupant as someone who owes him a drug debt or something. He immediately confronts the debtor and says something to the effect of, I'll show you what happens when people disrespect me and don't pay the debt, pulls out a knife and stabs him and he dies. Altercation number two. The person who does the stabbing over the drug debt is clearly guilty in my submission of a homicide for stabbing in altercation number two. But in my submission, that person 
is not a party, as the law of party liability stood certainly before the Court of Appeal decision, to the altercation involving the four individuals, because that was a separate altercation over a separate issue. It just happened to be going on essentially at the same time in the same suite. And it is possible in my submission, given the findings of fact made by the trial judge and the record before her, that she had a reasonable doubt that something akin to what I just described in that hypothetical could have happened. There was such a vacuum in the terms of the evidence and the medical evidence as it related to Mr. Tong did not, as she found, bear the hallmarks of a group attack. It was very different than what I would describe as the much more frenzied attack on at least two of the victims of the aggravated assault. And if the trial judge had a reasonable doubt about whether all individuals were part of the group attack, and she did, in my submission, it was open to her to acquit of the homicide. Because in discussing the evidence, and this was in the context of acquitting Mr. Nelson, the co-accused of everything, um, at page paragraph 162 of the trial decision, the trial judge stated, Mr. Nelson's presence in the Bernstick suite that night is insufficient to ground culpability, meaning for the aggravated assaults and the homicide, without proof of something more. An inference could potentially be drawn that Mr. Nelson was engaged in the fighting on the basis of Mr. Strathdy, the evidence of Mr. Strathdy in his statements, Mr. Kalick and Mr. Phillips that, quote, everybody was fighting. As well, Mr. Nelson's left hand appears to have been injured during the melee. However, this circumstantial evidence is insufficient for me to conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Nelson was involved in the fight. So the implication of that in my submission is she specifically rejects, or at least finds that she can't be certain that everybody was involved in the fight that initially broke out, that initial group attack. Except, may I, but she does accept the admission of Mr. Strathdy that they were going there to confront, okay, a word that can be ambiguous, and yes. that he said that there would be some, uh, maybe some uh, fighting, and uh, he admitted to punching. So do, he stands in a very different place, and 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 I guess I wonder um, whether the problem isn't that uh, when we're talking about group violence, um, it's group on group violence, and uh, why isn't why shouldn't uh, the trial judge have asked the question about whether Mr. Strathdy was um, a significant contributing cause? In the, with the knowledge that he had of what was going to go on there. Um, could you address that, please? Because the trial judge specifically declined to find that there was a plan to go in there to launch an attack. That was the theory of the Crown, that this was attack planned in advance, that they broke in and assaulted the members of the suite. But the trial judge specifically acquitted of the break and enter. So upon entering into the suite, she found there was no common intention. She found the word that Mr. Strathdy used that they were going to confront did not necessarily mean a physical confrontation. So it's in that context that go into the suite. Yes, then a fight breaks out between some of the occupants of the suite. Several is the word that the trial judge used. But she specifically declined to find that everybody was fighting in the context of that group attack. So while there was a group attack, she found that the injuries to Mr. Tong did not were not consistent with him being involved in a group attack. 
If the evidence were clearer, and for example, the Ball decision of the BC Court of Appeal, where it's clearly a two-on-two, I think, in that case, fight in a bar where somebody pulls out a knife and someone's stabbed in that two-on-two incident. That's sort of akin to what I described as altercation number one in the hypothetical I provided to the court. And clearly, party liability would flow there. But on the evidence before her, given that so much of the evidence was from people who had absolute contempt for the court process, the trial judge was not prepared to find that the stabbing of Mr. Tong was part of that group attack. And it is very different because when we look at many of the cases involving party liability, many of them are defense appeals of a case where the argument is essentially, well, yes, there was a stabbing, but the accused didn't inflict the stabbing. Uh, and there, the courts are very clear, trial judges are entitled to find that a person is a joint principal on the basis that a blow where there's common intention, a blow inflicted by one is a blow inflicted by all. But that is a very different thing in my submission from what the Court of Appeal is essentially saying here, which is that the trial judge was required as a matter of law to find that Mr. Strathdy was a joint principal in the homicide of Mr. Tong. But can I ask you, Mr. Johnson, sorry, yep. you, you can finish your point. I, I no, that was fine. No, okay. Um, you took us to paragraph 162, where she was not satisfied that Mr. Nielsen was actually involved in the fighting. In that paragraph, she, she talks about he wasn't involved in the fight. I'm just, is there anything in her reasons that suggests that she thought there might be more than one fight happening? Is there anything anywhere that suggests there was more than one altercation? I mean, you've given us a scenario, altercation one and altercation two. So I'm just asking you, is there something in her reasons that we could to ground that submission in? Um, that would be the line that where she finds that the stabbing of Mr. Tong was a discreet act. Um, and the implication there in my submission um, is that in finding it was a discreet act, she found it was an act, at least had a doubt about whether it was an act separate and apart from the group assault. Do you because that's how she describes it. Do you have the paragraph reference, Andy? Um, I do. If I could just have a moment. That's all right. I'll find um, it. I do remember reading it. I just can't seem to find I, it. That I can't seem to find it at the moment. My apologies. Um, on that, I will Mr. find John it for the court, yeah, though. On that question, Mr. Johnson, um, the Court of Appeal says that paragraph 43 seems to say that um, the trial judge found it was a discreet act, not because of the timing, but just because uh, of her inability to determine the identity of the stabber. So the Court of Appeals says at the end of paragraph 43, the trial judge did not separate the, de the death of Tong by timing. She separated it by an inability to determine the identity of the stabber. So it seems that the Court of Appeals uh, said, okay, uh, she came to the conclusion it was a discreet act, not because it was altercation two as opposed to altercation one, but because she was not able to determine who was the stabber. And with all due respect to the Court of Appeal, in my submission, that is the, their interpretation of the evidence or their, the spin that they're putting on the trial judge's findings of fact. But if you look at the trial judge's findings of fact in totality, in the context of the record she had before her, although she didn't expressly say 
and her reasons could have been clearer. It is possible that Mr. Tong's stabbing was an entirely separate altercation where she uses the words discreet act. She finds the injuries. I've just done a word search and I don't see that word there. It does appear, the word distinct event appears in the appeal decision, but, but. Um, um, I'm, I don't think it's fair to say she describes anything as a discrete act. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but sorry, that, what, that's sorry, an important what she point. said was there is no evidence of others applying force to Mr. Tong prior to his death. The evidence of Mr. Kalik that he saw Mr. Strathy stab Mr. Tong seven times, including in the face, is unbelievable given that he stabbed suffered only one stab wound to the chest. She says, this is not a classic scenario where multiple persons assaulted Mr. Tong at the same time. So what's, what's required to be shown here? Reasonable, I mean, do you say that, that he can be convicted for manslaughter only if he foresaw the likelihood of harm to Mr. Tong or just that he could have foreseen a risk of harm as a result of his participation in assault, which at paragraph 50, 157 he's recounted as having acknowledged. So it is a very different thing from the it being an available inference for the trial judge to have convicted Mr. Strathdee of the manslaughter versus what the Court of Appeal is saying, which is that the trial judge was required as a matter of law to convict Mr. Strathdee of the manslaughter, and the Court of Appeal went and substituted a conviction. This was such an unclear record, the trial judge found she could not find that all occupants of the suite were involved in the group attack. She could not find that the injuries to Mr. Tong were consistent with more than one person inflicting those injuries. And so in my submission, it was open to her to have a reasonable doubt about whether the stabbing of Mr. Tong occurred as part and parcel of the group attack that Mr. Strathdee admitted to being involved in, which is where he admitted to throwing some punches. And so that's the difference. I'm not appealing a conviction the trial judge entered on manslaughter and saying that was not an available inference. My submission is that the trial judge was entitled to have a reasonable doubt and she was not required as a matter of law to convict Mr. Strathdee in this case. Okay, that's helpful, thank you. Uh, Mr. Johnson, is, is, there, is there something other than the single, the single knife wound that would take the, the, the so-called discreet act outside of the scope of the group assault? Is it, what is it exactly that takes it outside of the scope of the group assault. The other stabbings, for example, were they part of the group assault? So I think what the trial judge found in two out of the three uh, victims of the aggravated assault, the injuries were consistent with a much more frenzied attack. There were multiple injuries to two of those people. One of them, one of the victims of the aggravated assault did also suffer a single stab wound. And whether the trial judge could have, or maybe even should have, had a reasonable doubt about whether that person was part of the group attack as well is not an issue before the court today. But given the vacuum here, and the quotation from Walker that I gave at the beginning about the lack of foundation that it was open to the trial judge to essentially throw her hands up and say, I have a reasonable doubt. I know there was a group attack. I know the injuries to Mr. Tong do not appear to be consistent with him being involved 
in a group attack and the sense of being assaulted by more than one person. The evidence before me is so unreliable that I don't know what to believe. Accordingly, I have a reasonable doubt about the manslaughter. Thank you very much. Your time is up. Thank you. I'm sorry, but could you indicate the paragraph to uh, refer to by Justice Kirkatsanis when she asked you the question? It may have been actually that I, in using discrete act, um, that might have been my words, paraphrasing paragraph 137 of the trial decision. Thank you very much. Uh, in, in I will look, but that Chief might have Justice, been my error. It may be in fairness, paragraph 43 of the appeal decision responds to a suggestion that the stabbing of Mr. Tong was a distinct event, separate and apart from the group assault. That may be as well, in addition to what you've just directed us to, what you may be thinking about. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so my apologies. I will look more, but I think it's paragraph 137, and that was just my paraphrasing right. of it. Thank you very much. Thank Ms. You. Morgan. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. The respondent's position is that the Alberta Court of Appeal was correct, and they stayed true to the trial judge's findings of fact. In this case, the trial judge was satisfied. The appellant was a member of a group that entered this suite. A fire extinguisher was set off. Then the group assaulted the occupants of the suite. My friend has emphasized the um, trial judge's wordings of several occupants, but one has to remember that Mr. Burnstick, whose suite this, um, it was under his name, so we call it the Burnstick suite and all the materials. His evidence was that he was in his room the entire time. He just heard yelling. So he did not participate or uh, suffer any injuries during this invasion. So when the trial judge talks about an assault against several occupants, Mr. Burnstick was an occupant who wasn't assaulted. The appellant does not challenge the finding that he participated in a group assault. He does not challenge the findings that he is liable for the three non-fatal multiple stabbings where one victim was stabbed once. He does not challenge the findings that the evidence established the foreseeability of the requisite harm for aggravated assault. That, and that was a probable consequence of this group attack. What the appellant uh, argued at the Court of Appeal and again before this court is that the fatal stabbing is somehow separate and apart from this group attack. It's the appellant's position that a fair reading of the trial judge's decision is that there was one attack. She also calls it a fight. She calls it um, the fatal stabbings, stabbing, sorry. At paragraph 94, um, the trial judge states, the events that transpired after the group of people entered the Burnstick suite were described by Mr. Strathy as chaotic and crazy and happening quickly. At the end of that paragraph in her decision, and this is in the respondent's condensed book at page three, tab two B, she states, clearly a knife was involved given Mr. Tong's fatal injury and the stab wound injuries sustained by the other complainants, and she names them. When you read through her decision, she's constantly referring to one event, one transaction. At paragraph 97, she talks about six witnesses provide evidence as to what transpired in the suite during the attack. Not multiple attacks, one attack. She refers to a melee in paragraph 107. In paragraphs 112, 113, 114, 121, she refers to the attack and the attackers. In paragraph 121, she talks about a fight. The evidence such as it was, and there's no question, this was a challenging trial with difficult witnesses. The complainants were um, incapacitated and 
intoxicated, unable to defend themselves from this group that came in, particularly after being sprayed by a fire extinguisher. To assist the court, the respondent provided uh, some excerpts of the photos to give you an idea of how small this apartment was. There's one hallway leading from the door to the kitchen um, and five or six young men come in. They would fill up that space really quickly. You can see the white residue from the extinguishers everywhere. Um, the one complainant testified that when he, after being stabbed, and he can't say how he got stabbed, but he was stabbed multiple times, he wakes up in the living room, he's uh, bloodied. He sees the victim, Mr. Tong. He says he's awake in the living room, and one of the other complainants is also bloodied and in the living room. It defies logic that somehow these six men come in to this small apartment to assault the occupants and stab three people non-fatally, and that somehow Mr. Tong's stabbing is not part of this, given the close proximity of the room, the furniture, the events, the extinguisher residue is everywhere, as well as the timing. The evidence is that it was quick, it was chaotic. The trial judge erred by failing to assess this within her finding that Mr. Strathy, the appellant, was acting as part of a group during the group assault. She's almost requiring the Crown to prove who, which participant stabbed Mr. Tong, and at that precise moment in time, what exactly were the other participants doing? And I submit that that is not the law. Or alternatively, that Mr. Tong had to sustain more than one injury for the appellant to be liable as part of the group. I submit that is also not the law. The British Columbia Court of Appeal in Ball at paragraph 24, which is an excerpt in the Crown's condensed book at tab 3C, states at the end of that paragraph, with an attack by two or more on two or more victims, an attacker may only strike one victim while others strike the second, or they may all strike both. The attackers are all actual committers. And at paragraph 30, it matters little that each attacker did not lay a hand on each person assaulted. What matters is that they all played a part in the attack, whether it was striking one brother or both of them in that case, in such a case, the blow of one is the blow of them all. And it is the respondent's position and that is what happened in this case. Based on the trial judge's findings in relation to the aggravated assault, the appellant is also guilty of manslaughter as a principal. The Alberta Court of Appeal is correct in my submission that the trial judge separated the manslaughter by her inability to, deter to determine the precise identity of the stabber and that she erred by doing so. The trial judge's key findings to which the Alberta Court of Appeal did not add was that there was a group assault on the occupants of the Burnstick suite. And those who joined in the assault, including the appellant, were responsible. And that bodily harm was objectively foreseeable as a probable consequence of that assault. Subject to any questions the court may have, um, I, I don't want to keep emphasizing the same point, but it's the respondent's position that based on the factual findings by the trial judge, the appellant is properly convicted of manslaughter. And the reply, Mr. Johnson? Uh, just very briefly, um, we did a quick search looking for the word um, distinct or discrete act. And as I 
suspected by the end of my initial submissions. I think that was my paraphrasing of paragraph 137 of the trial judge's reasons combined with the word distinct used by the Court of Appeal. And the actual finding of the trial judge is that what was at paragraph 137, where she said, this is not a classic scenario where multiple persons assaulted Mr. Tong at the same time. Um, the respondent has submitted that the trial judge was requiring the Crown to prove the identity of who stabbed Mr. Tong. And I would submit that that's not what the trial judge was doing. Well, the trial judge's reasons certainly could have been more clear. And it's maybe a little bit unfortunate that she dealt with um, some of her discussion of the law under headings of aggravated assault and homicide. In my submission, reading her decision as a whole and the fact that she dealt with the homicide separately, it's because she considered the homicide to at least possibly be a separate act, which was not part of the initial group attack, and that's why she dealt with it separately in her reasons. So it's not that she said, the Crown, you have to prove who stabbed Mr. Tong. In my submission, what she's essentially saying is, I can't be sure that Mr. Tong was stabbed as part of a group attack. And accordingly, given my other findings of fact, I am not prepared to convict of the homicide. And although it's not as clear as that, that's why I included the more recent case of GF in my materials. Um, this court's decision from I think, May of this year, uh, where at paragraph 74, the quotation um, is that, you know, trial judges are presumed to know the law, and this stems from the presumption of correct application, the presumption that the trial judge understands the basic principles of criminal law at issue in the trial. Trial judges are presumed to know the law, which they work in day in, day out. A functional and contextual reading must keep this presumption in mind. And it's very clear from reading her decision because the trial judge says she correctly cites the law. It doesn't matter who strikes the more serious blow. A blow on one is a blow on all. She's clearly alive to that legal principle. But in my submission, the way she structured her reasons, the fact that she chose to deal with Mr. Tong separately in her reasons, the fact that she found Mr. Tong's injuries were not consistent with a group attack means she had a reasonable doubt about whether Mr. Tong was involved in the group attack. And on these facts and this record, in my submission, she was not required to find as a matter of law that Mr. Strafty was a joint principal in the attack on Mr. Tong. And so it's my respectful submission uh, that the conviction entered by the Court of Appeal should be set aside and the acquittal restored, or at a minimum, if the court feels the reasons are simply not clear enough, the appropriate remedy is a new trial. Those would be my only further submissions. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, I would ask the attorneys to remain at our disposal. Thank you. Be seated. So I'd like to thank counsel for uh, your excellent uh, submissions given the nature of this case. Uh, but the court is, is unanimous and is ready to uh, release its decision. I will ask uh, Justice Rowe to read the reasons. Thank you, Chief Justice. <clears throat> Mr. Strathney appeals as of right to this court under Section 691-2B of the Criminal Code on the basis that the Alberta Court of Appeal overturned his acquittal for unlawful act manslaughter and entered a conviction. The trial judge, sitting as judge alone, had acquitted Mr. Strathty after considering joint co-principal liability and abetting under section, uh, subsection 211A 
and 211C respectively of the Criminal Code. The charges against Mr. Strathdee stemmed from a group assault in which several victims sustained multiple injuries and one victim, Mr. Tong, sustained a single stab wound which caused his death. We agree with the Court of Appeal that there is no basis for the view that the stabbing of Mr. Tong was a distinct act outside the scope of the group attack. Having regard to the findings of fact in paragraphs 137 and 156 through 159 of the trial decision and the statement of law set out by the Court of Appeal at paragraphs 61, 66, and 68 of its decision, this Court affirms the result of the Alberta Court of Appeal that Mr. Strathdee is guilty of unlawful act manslaughter. We also wish briefly to clarify uh, the statement of law in the Queen and Cabrera, a decision of the Alberta Court of Appeal from 2019. Any implication from Cabrera that joint co-principal liability is automatically eliminated if the evidence demonstrates application of force by only a single perpetrator is not accurate. Joint co-principal liability flows whenever two or more individuals come together with an intention to commit an offense, are present during the commission of the offense, and contribute to its commission. In the context of manslaughter, triers of fact should focus on whether an accused's actions were a significant contributing cause of death rather than focusing on which perpetrator inflicted which wound or whether all of the wounds were caused by a single individual. In the context of group assaults, absent a discrete or intervening event, the actions of all assailants can constitute a significant contributing cause to all injuries sustained. Properly read, the discussion of party liability in the Queen and Picton, a decision of this court from 2010, is fully consistent with the foregoing. Accordingly, we would dismiss the appeal. La cour est ajournée au 2 novembre prochain. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.